That's in that in one generation. And when we say one generation, it's about a forty-year period we're talking about here. So I suggest to the idea that in such a scenario, it might be necessary for us to commit to memory seven key scripture passages that would provide the Bible summary in a form, in a, in a way, I should say, in an effort to to maintain its message of salvation. So the first of these passages we talked about was Genesis 1 and verse 1. And again, God created heaven and earth. And that passage there describes the creation of the world. The second is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. This passage explains the fall of man from God's grace, but also, but also God's promise that in the future that he would deal with his failure. So let us pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you so very much. And Father, we thank you, Father, for the power of your word. We thank you that over the years, Father, it has remained strong, it has remained consistent, and it has remained a source by which we can go to, Father, to know more about you, Father, but also how to learn more according to your will. And Father, we thank you for that. And Father, as we have gathered here tonight, Father, may we have with open hearts and good minds, Father, to hear your word. And we look for things that we can bring from this message, Father, to help us in change our walk of faith. Father, we thank you for your name, Christ Jesus, most holy name. Amen. So in this lesson, then, we will study passages 3 and 4, where the Bible begins to describe the person that God was talking about who will fulfill his promise for salvation man. So the first passage, is a, a description of the Savior in, in uh, a historical context. And the second passage, passage number four, is deals more with, uh, rather describes the spiritual perspective of this person. Until the time of Abraham, there was no information at all that was being revealed directly concerning, if you will, the promise made to Adam and God. None at all. People knew that God had spoken about a Savior of some kind. They knew he was going to come in some way. But other than that, God was silent. God was silent. Which is to say, no one knew who he would be. No one knew how he would actually, or what he would actually do to save mankind. So the first revelation about these matters come to a man called Abram. Abram, he lived in the land of Europe in what is called the modern day of Iraq. The passage concerning Abram introduces a family through whom God will ultimately produce it, an individual who will fulfill the promises that he made in Genesis 3. The passage grounds in history and family what God had only promised in spirit. So we look at Genesis, chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 7. What we find is that it sets the opening scene of a storyline of that world. Follow the human thread of the Savior lineage from the man Abram, who was first called to produce the nation from which the Savior would come. So the 
story begins by introducing a family that's in transition. So when we look at, starting at verse 27, the Bible reads, Now these are the records of the generation of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahar, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahar took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahar's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. And you note that Haran is the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Sarai was, was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of, Har of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together out of Europe, the Chaldeans, in order, in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So let's look at what has happened so far. Haran died young. Nahor married his brother's daughter, who is his niece. Abram married his half-sister, Sarah, who is barren. Now, other than that, we have very few details. We see here that it seems that Terah, along with his relatives, Abram, his wife, Lot, his grandson, they left their land and headed to Canaan. Somewhere along the way, they ended up stopping in Haran, probably named after his son, and that's where he decided to stay. And as far as Terah is concerned, that's where the story ended about him. He may have refused to go on, we don't know. He may have been sick, we don't know. All we do know is that his original destination was king, but for one reason or another, he never made it. So then this takes us to chapter 12. This sets the scene of God's call to Abram. Starting in chapter 12, the verse when the Bible reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Chicken to the, uh, to the oak of Moray. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
things that were keeping him there. What was he leaving? What was he leaving? His country. Now back in that time, people rarely left their villages, let alone their country. So he left his country. He left his culture. He left his language. He left his traditions. He left his religions. He left his family. He left his friends. He left his work. He left his home. He left his land. Abraham is actually leaving everything behind. However, in all this, God makes a series of promises to him if he would respond to what God was asking him to do in obedience. Let's look at the first five things that, that God was promising him. Abram will give rise to a great nation. He himself will be a great man. He will bless others with his life. God will protect him. And the entire world throughout history will be blessed through him. Now, these sound like great blessings, but, but we need to consider something. We need to consider Abram's state. First of all, he had to complete the forsake home, family, nation, culture, in order to have it to build a great nation built from himself. Now, think about that for a moment. He had to abandon the very things that was necessary to create a nation in order to have a nation come from his generation. Number two, he had to abandon the safety of what was familiar to him in order to go into an unknown land only with the promise of God's protection and no visual sign of it. You guys have probably heard me say this a long time ago. It's been here a while. A, a book I read a long time ago, and actually there's another one lesson on it. I can't see a second book I put on first. Well, that book was written using the scripture. Because you think about Abraham for a moment, Abraham wasn't trying to keep one foot over here and keep, keep these family members close. God said, go Abraham, step off first base and head to second. That's the bottom line. Step off first base and head to second. And that tells us something when we become Christians as well. When we become Christians, we're getting up this world of life, we have to step off first and head to second. We can't keep one foot on first base Anybody ever know baseball? Nobody ever stole first, second base, standing on first. Nobody. They got to step off the plate. And that's what Abraham did, or Abraham at this particular time. And that's what we have to do too when we come to Christ. We have to step off first and get the second. Now, the journey, the journey to Canaan was approximately 400 miles. And he had his family, he had his servants, he had all his livestock, and all that good stuff with us. In verse 7. We see that the Lord appears to him. The Lord appears to him. And this is the first time that this phenomenon had happened, where God was present in the physical context. And that's how they decided to express it here. He decided to express it here. Now, a sixth event happened. We learn that God does all of this in order to have one more blessing to Abraham. Or Abraham at this point. This is not Abraham. And that's number six on the board. That the land he was living in would one day be the possession of his people. So six promises. Good time. And we, we, we said this before. God changed Abraham's name. His name originally meant I or called his father. It was changed to Abraham, which means 
to the adherents of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, some of the guilt of Nazareth, who was himself of the tribe of Judah, and he also was a direct descendant of Abraham. Note that something wasn't said when we were saying all that. Note that we never, in what was said up to this point, we referred to being to Christ Jesus at all as the, the Son of God. We did not. Although we know, because of this genealogy, we know that he is a descendant of the genealogy of David and Hugh. So then, passage 4, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Before we were looking at the historical context, now we're going to turn our attention to the spiritual perspective of this Savior, of this one that God had, had uh, promised. According to different scholars, there is something like two to four hundred prophecies concerning Christ Jesus that are contained in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Christ Jesus in the New Testament. The fulfillment of prophecy is one of the major arguments for the restoration of the Bible. And that it says this right here. Only the Bible can contain fulfilled prophecy. Only the Bible can contain fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is the only holy book that can go, that contains both prophecy and its confirmed fulfillment in the same text. To begin with Abraham, the Old Testament primarily tells the story of the Jewish nation, but it interlaces this with the story of the golden thread of prophecy from generation to generation that spoke of God's promise and see that was coming. At a certain point, a certain point in both human history and Jewish history. The Jews were God's children, we know that. But they were chosen for in reason. And that reason was the bringing of Christ Jesus into the world. The prophets, however, were the ones that they were the ones that put a face in the world and a purpose to the person of Christ. The fourth of the seven passages is coming from one of the prophets, and that is the prophet Isaiah. More than any other prophet, Isaiah prophesies prophecy rather concerning the Messiah who described not only the character of the Savior. But lay out the details of his actual mission in saving mankind from sin, from eternal damnation, a condemnation. So let's look at Isaiah. Let's look at the character. Let's look at the character of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, starting verse 1. Bible reads Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form of majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid hide rather their faces their face 
he was despised. And we did not see him. Isaiah began by anticipating doubt and disbelief of the thing that he was about to say concerning the Messiah. He says that he would suffer. He goes on to describe a man who would have no natural appeal to others, one who would be considered of low esteem and rejected by most people. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of, of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this, his generation, they considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a gift offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors.
four. Set free those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled. John 3, verses 14 through 16, as we read the current reading. We have a few minutes, so if you guys want to make comments, have us a laugh with the microphone. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Especially what he did So, any comments? Any comments?
Isn't it amazing how God used everything on the earth, nature and the events that happened that he called to happen, the events, people and nations that surrounded the people all to bring to fruition the coming of the Messiah. And every event, like Court said, was very specific and as bad as the earth looked then, as far as people are concerned, events, situations, wars, etc. And, and, and today, we can witness from the Old Testament um, the perfection of God, even in the midst of a, a world of tragedy in regards to sin and uh, hatred for each other. It's pretty amazing.